Hey everybody, it's Thursday and you're listening to Weisenheimer the podcast. I'm listening what? to what? Thursday? Yeah, it's Thursday. And I'm a faithful listener, which means if this is Thursday and there's a Weisenheimer, it's gotta be an interview. Yep. It's an impromptu interview. Awesome. If you listen to our previous episode, uh, episode 44, we had a special guest joining us from the Detroit Improv Festival, mm-hmm. and his name was Joe Bill. A Mr. Joe Bill. A Mr. The Joe Bill. The Joe Bill. He's on Twitter as at a Mr. Joe Bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is an amazing man, and he joined us, and we go, go listen to episode 44. Yep, and go right now. We'll wait. Come back and listen to this interview. Leslie? You're friends with the man. You've known the man. Joe Bill is one of my dear, dear friends from Chicago. And even more importantly, he is one of the um, mainstay teachers. He is a mighty oak mm-hmm. of the Chicago improvisational scene. And um, he his interview was a little bit different from the previous impromptu interviews we mm-hmm. did. Because what Joe has done in the last few years is traveled extensively Mm -hmm. around the world teaching improvisation. And he had some great observations of different cultures uh, attracted to improv, how different places approach improv in a different way, as well as he was one of the forefronts of improvisation as an art form unto itself. And he's seen the growth from a world perspective. And we got a chance to talk to Joe about that. That was pretty cool. Yeah, it was interesting hearing about all of the um, touring that he does around the world and his insights on the way it's growing in which you're about to hear. Yeah, and I'm not going to spoil it, but there's a cool moment where you kind of say, what was it like being like on the front lines of when improv was just 50 people in Chicago and now it's like a worldwide phenomenon? And like... He's the guy who goes to all these places and teaches. So it's 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 great listen. And, yeah. We can't thank Joe enough. Uh, this is the last of our impromptu interviews from the Detroit Improv Aww. Festival. So we wanted to thank Joe Bill, Jacqueline Cherry, Susan Messing, and Mark Wazeka for taking time to not only podcast with us, but also talk shop. Because... It's great to just sit down with other improvisers and hear their stories and their history and kind of learn from them. So yeah. uh, we're getting good feedback on these, so we're going to try and do more of them when we can. So thanks for listening. You are currently at Annoyance, correct? I am a a supportive, happy, uh, loving alumni of the Annoyance, and okay. so I don't do I don't work there. Um, I do a couple of shows there a year, and I pop by for a drink. Mm-hmm. But when we closed the Clark Street space in two thousand, uh, we had talked about doing like digital stuff, and in the meantime, Mark Sutton and I started doing Basprov. Mm-hmm. And uh, a year or two after that, there was talk about the theater coming back and you know getting a theater again. And I was like, I was 38, and I thought, oh, I don't know if doing co-ed prison sluts into my 40s is what I want to do. And I loved it; it was great. But uh, I just felt like it was time to move on. Um, the road was kind of calling me, and then I went back to I/O uh, to do more long-form stuff because I was a little more passionate about that. Mm-hmm. But I loved the annoyance, and I was happy to be a part of it. And it was. 12 of the most wonderful and at the same time self-destructive years Mm -hmm. of my life. 
You have to have those self-destructive years. Do you agree? To, you to know be... what? You cannot know serenity unless you know self-destruction. There you go. It's mm -hmm. a contrast thing. So it was, you know, no regrets. It was all worth it. But uh, in there, it was like the best of times. And I was in some ways like the best version of myself. And at the same time during those 12 years, I was also the worst version of myself. Do you feel like you were on the beginning pulse of the improv scene in Chicago as it was forming? I don't. I mean, I think that would be like Compass Players and Mike Nichols and people like that. But as it is now in this, in this. I mean, maybe it's. Uh, I mean, I think Annoyance uh, provided like a valuable third institution. Um, I mean, we started off kind of. It was part rebelling, but as part, we just had like a group of people that were. It was just like an insane group of people that wanted to do their own thing, and Mick was so articulate in terms of like what he wanted it to be. And it was kind of an invitation for like awesome people who all had their own, you know, damage or addictions or whatever to kind of come together. And um, and Mick just, he, I mean, he kept it simple. He had a really good eye for uh, different types of people that could all come together under one roof. And my favorite thing about the annoyance was like at any given annoyance party, you could like stand and look out in the room. And if it wasn't for the annoyance, the collection of, let's say that hundred people that were there at a party, they would never have any reason to come together. And so maybe if, if there's some influence we had on the Chicago community, maybe it was sort of becoming an institution that de-institutionalized the either the, the binary of either second city or IO it gave a different outlet. And then the other part is like festivals started to happen when we were at Annoyance. And so uh, like the, the uh, shit, the big stinking International Improv Festival in Austin was one of the first festivals in the 90s and Screw Puppies used to go to that. And I mean, and that was, there was one or two little festivals that happened, but I mean, it's, I say this now kind of incredulously, but it's like, I, I, like I was there when festivals started and yeah. now I literally travel the world. I'm going to a festival in Romania. I was just at a festival <laughs> in Australia, uh, a, a festival in Bulgaria after Romania in the fall. And it's, and like improv has just become such an international thing that maybe I look at our influence and then the people that have sprung out of annoyance. There's, there's a handful of us that do travel internationally. David Rosowski and Messing and Rachel Mason do some international stuff. Um, so maybe we helped spawn a little bit the global improv movement. And also, when Mark and I travel, we really want to like help communities grow. So typically we'll either go to a community where there's only one theater and we uh, we encourage you know we encourage or help them try to grow it and then invariably once a theater's been somewhere for 10 years somebody will want to split off and so then we help we try to help them know that that's normal and no matter the circumstances it's only good for more improv institutions to take place so I see I see the annoy the quote unquote annoyance influence personally or for what I have to do with it is uh, more foundational in the broader aspect. I would say in this iteration right now of what improv is in globally, nationally, let's focus on America, whatever. Arguably, you are one of the main teachers that when, when let's say the top three to five names of influential improvisation teachers entities in and of yourself mm -hmm. your name is is thrown out i think i think i'm one of the top american teachers mm -hmm. and and the 
the awesome thing is, the humbling thing is, is that there are amazing teachers from, I mean, even just to the north in Canada, there's like amazing teachers there. There's amazing teachers from Australia. There's people that have been teaching in Europe maybe as long as I have. And though, you know, the approaches to improvisation can be different in different places in the world, like coming together with people and getting rid of that egotistical kind of like, this is the only way to improv or this is the right way. You know, for me, it's like uh, going global has been shedding that. I know how I like to play, but it's like, let me play a narrative or let me play a theater sports. Let me play a maestro. Let me play in your, you know, dark Swedish uh, <laughs> theatrical improvisational piece. Like I'm so fascinated by the different ways that people make shit up and then how they're... Uh, the country or city, whatever that they're from, influences that. The culture. Yeah, the culture. That's the word. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So, but but it's um, in a way, I I think the credit. There's a guy named Randy Dixon from um, Seattle, and he was in a way, I think, the first international kind of uh, teaching hero, and he was he was very good friends with Dell when Dell taught out in Seattle and San Francisco. Randy was like the teenager. And Randy was the first one to really, especially bring the worlds of Del Close and Keith Johnstone together. Mm. And he was very generous in sort of paving the way for me through Europe. Um, he was one of the people, and then uh, there's a woman, Becky Johnson from, uh, she's like, is she from when? Uh, she's Canadian. Uh, but I, she's in Toronto now, she's at Second City Toronto now, but it's like Winnipeg or Edmonton or somewhere. But it's like without those people, you know, they helped open the door for me. And it's like once I got there, I had to be able to do my thing. But I think I've helped break down people's vision or idea that like American improvisers are kind of insular and snobby. And is that the is that the global uh, attitude? I think it used to be. Oh. I think it's less that now. But I think in the last, especially the last five years, and sometimes I teach in summer intensive at I.O., but with all these like summer intensives now at I.O., at Second City, at Annoyance, you know, people come to Chicago from all over the frickin' world. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was uh, talking to Dave Pasquese a little while ago, and he said he and TJ were in, I think it was Austria or somewhere like that, and there's 40 people there to take a TJ and Dave class. And, uh, and Dave said, okay, how many people have heard of Harold? And every hand goes wow. up. Mm. And uh, he came back from that tour and he was talking to uh, one of the other Barons Barracudas and he said, man, you remember like in the early 80s when there was maybe 50 of us? Globally. The, globally mm. in yeah. the world who knew what a Harold was and now there's tens of thousands of people that know what Harold is. It's crazy. Yeah. So do you find them when you go to other countries like that, that the philosophies, because you hear kind of each institution kind of has their own philosophy or approaches to how to, uh, you know, approach improv. Do you find that the other countries have anything like that where it's, or they all kind of approach improv the same way? I think there's, uh, the way, so the first thing, the first thing that we kind of look at is Keith Johnson and Del Close. And Keith Johnstone was a playwright, uh, a teacher, a director. And so most of Europe, he was originally a Brit. He moved to Canada. Um, he was uh, started or was part of uh, this theater, Loose Moose, which he made famous. And it's very, um, the tenets I think that they are raised with is like the story is everything and we're always making sure we're taking care of the audience. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the notes and a lot of the 
instruction that people receive that grow up in the Johnstone School, which is far broader, far more universal and global than our approach, than Dell's approach, than or or the the state's approach. I'll, most of the notes in the, the learning comes from an objective point of view. So you learn a point of view that is like, if you're stepping outside of the scene, like what, what type of story are we doing here? And, you know, given the six or nine or seven or 12 or however many possible story structures they are, that's a finite amount. Which one are we in and how do we do that story the best? And hopefully within that story, how do we have character interactions that make characters compelling so the story is more than just a connecting the dots to create a narrative. And a lot of times when I've seen narratives fall flat, they can work They can work the story and they can get to A, a to B to C to D to E and the story works with the characters you don't give a if shit. If you don't care about them, yeah. Mm -hmm. And in North America, I think, or in our world in Chicago, a lot of the instruction is from the inside out. So like they're from the outside in. It, a lot of us, it's like, what's the emotional point of view? What's the intention? What are the actor's objectives? We're very actor-centric because Dell was an actor and a director. And uh, But you know, all of Dell's notes play to the top of your intelligence. Uh, don't, uh, don't say the first or the second thing, say the third thing. Uh, Keith Johnson would say, uh, trust your obvious, say the obvious thing. Dell would say, uh, don't say the obvious thing, say the interesting thing. Um, and then Mick came along, and I think Mick is the next, like Mick is truly the one that belongs in that class, where it's just like, fuck it, have fun, get what your deal is, stick with your deal, you know, uh, play your deal with your partner until somebody changes. But that's still, that's looking from our point of view, that's how do we, uh, how do we take care of ourselves and our training doesn't involve uh, side coaching where you, like you stop and you stop and you discuss or let's you replace something as much as it happens over there. So we have to learn to be more self-reliant. We have to learn to, if we're fucking something up, like to pause and take it, you know, like what's this about and go for it. Do you feel like the American style, at least from a Chicago point of view, is because we're so inter-centric and we're that we tend to lose track of the narrative or yes. don't or don't get to the point? Well, you can see a Herald that has great characters or great scenes, but at the end of the day, it's like, what the? F what? I mean, that was great. Didn't go anywhere. Didn't go anywhere. And then you can see great characters, and then even some connections were made, and you see this, the scenes start to come together, the worlds come together in the third beat. And then it's still not like a clean narrative. Um, but I mean, and Heralds are so short now that like you really get to the third beat anyway, so you don't get a sense of closure and it just becomes this montage thing, which is all good and fun, but there's just some people, there's some audiences, audiences overseas, like they want a story and they want to they want to see a proposition at the beginning, they want to see an aspiration, they want to see a barrier, they want to see you overcome the barrier, and then they want to see people changed at the end. And here, um, and I think it's because in America we're more expressive, more exhibitionistic, whatever. Um, and, and the Canadians do this too. Like, it's just like fucking balls out, you know, energy characters, like keep things moving, keep things moving, keep things moving. I think we're not as patient in the United States and I think that we're not as well read. I don't think we're as literate as the rest of the world is. Um, because we don't have to be because it's also me centric and then how does how do we get a group of me's that can all Harmonize and jazz together so the egos don't really matter because there's a group ego and It's like this is how we fucking play and this is how we do it. And we're bringing it um, Which makes it very hard when those groups break up because to create that and to create that in a way that's great is tough <laughs> If that makes sense. I was in Chicago from 2000 to 2004 and when I moved up there, 
it was dictated to me by numerous people. You do I.O. to learn the basics. Mm-hmm. You, then you do Second City to learn how to like do improv to sketch. Then you go to Annoyance to learn how to say fuck all that and do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And by the time I left in 2005, it was go to the Annoyance first because you can learn the basics there and find your voice at the exact same time. Mm-hmm. Then go to I.O. because you're bringing your take on improv to to potential house teams to you know whatever and then then kind of going through the io process and then with those two in your back pocket go to second city because you're going as this formed entity kind of a thing Mm -hmm. and just a matter of that you know essentially going to college four years it flipped so hard Mm -hmm. and my personal experience i almost kind of felt the same way when i left i said i'm kind of mad i did annoyance last i wish i would have done annoyance first Mm -hmm. because and that Mick philosophy of, you know, have fun, that's the core of it. Like, you should be yeah. having fun with this, you know, kind of a thing. I mean, it's an interesting proposition if, like, if you don't start with the rules, but you just start with, let's just go have fun and play, and let's play our asses off, and then use the analytical or the academic part of our brain just as, like, a context of tracker. So, like, we're having fun, and we're rocking this out, and it's, like, fucking up for grabs. And then the part of our brain that would have us be scared and paralyzed and worried about the rules and all that shit just becomes like a in charge of the mile markers. Like, what have we done? Who are we here? What's this thing that we're doing? What's this thing that you're doing? What is this together? Like, what's transpired? And I think, I'm going to butcher this, but TJ Jagodowski mm-hmm. said it uh, something like this, and it's out there in the podcast world somewhere. But it's like, annoyance teaches you how to uh, light your flame. And I.O. teaches you how to build a fire. And Second City teaches you where to aim the fire. <laughs> That's interesting because if, if you don't do them in the right order, it could almost be detrimental to you. Because if you do do them, let's say the order of uh, annoyance first, and you feel that acceptance where you're like, your creativity is actually right. Mm-hmm. Bring it. Because um, you, you've seen as a coach at I.O., as a member of the Herald Commission, so many people who play, they play not to get cut. Or they play in fear of getting cut. Yeah, and I don't see as many young teams at I.O. these days. Hmm. I would be real careful about saying that there's a right order to take them. Like, I think it's, I think you start with, you start with the ultimate truth that the answer to every improv question is it depends. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And, and I think you, one could advise people to take it in the sequence that we're talking about. And I think that would be generally speaking, solid advice. However, why are you in in Chicago to study improv? Hmm. Why are like why are you doing that? Like if you just want to have fun, a noise is a pretty good place to start. If you just want to go have fun, if you if you aspire to be in show business and you're in Chicago for two to three years to get your theater chops, so you can either go to TV land or movie land, then maybe taking those in that sequence is right. But also, maybe just spending uh, a couple of years at I.O. and try to work your way into Second City and get on a stage can also be right. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, because maybe you already have, maybe you were a theater ma- major in school, you know, maybe you were in a, now, maybe you were in a high school improv troupe and then a college improv troupe and you, you were a big fish in that pond and you already kind of know your voice. 
maybe you want to go commercial. It's like, I don't want to be in Chicago forever. I want to, you know, I want to do, maybe you're just a type A scheduled person. It's like, I'm going to do two years and I'm going to get on main stage or not. If I don't get on main stage, then LA or New York's going to be my main stage. And if it's like, well, I don't know, you know, I fuck, I just want to study improv in Chicago, then, you know, good luck spending 10 years doing what you could do in three. Right. Uh, so, yeah, so, but I think that if, I think there's a greater sense of purpose with IO and Second City in terms of why people are there, uh, in terms of like the aspirations and stuff. And I think with annoyance, even if you're doing shows and you get on a roll and you're putting on shows at the annoyance, I mean, fuck, during my time there, we, we, we did like over a hundred shows in nine years and I was in 50 of them or indirected or, uh, whatever. And after a while, it's like, God damn, this is great fun and everything, but you're just churning shows. Mm-hmm. And so the, uh, the reps in the creative process is great. Cause, uh, I don't believe there's at least back in our day, uh, being part of that creative process is so huge. It, it, it's, it's so informative in terms of when I go overseas and I play a lot of times you go to a festival and they put you in a festival cast. So there's like eight to 12 people from all over the world. And maybe one or two of us is like leading something or show, you know, I'm, I'm going to teach you the bat. And then the guys from Columbia are going to teach you this silent thing with, you know, uh, whatever. But like being in that process and being supportive and open and judge, uh, without judgment in that process, I learned from the annoyance. It just depends. <laughs> it just depends. I am curious. First of all, because I think you are an entity as far as a teacher, mm-hmm. uh, you probably, when you are interviewed, they go, oh, you're from Indiana. They go all the way back and build up. And I don't want to bore you, but I also am fascinated with this. So like Dave Vasquezzi uh, said, remember when it was 50 people that knew mm-hmm. what improv was? Mm-hmm. And that let's say that was 19, what, 90, maybe? No, that was like 19, I think Dave started in 82 or 83 with Del, okay. and I came in 85. In your opinion, uh, being so involved in that, how did we get from 50 people who knew about improv to 50 people who sign up for TJ and Dave's class in Austria, mm-hmm. you know? How did this get as big as it is? Jesus. Um, I mean, if you look at it in terms of, if you look at it in, through this lens of why did improv go viral? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and we imagine that Malcolm Gladwell never wrote a book about that. <laughs> um, I think what I think is is that improv lets us play and improv is fun and improvisation is one of the only art mediums uh, it's one of the only types of theater where the product is the process so when you go watch an improv show, you're watching people in a process, and that process is the product. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You're watching people literally collaborate on a good night, <laughs> collaborate, build on each other's ideas, honor each other's ideas, honor each other's choices, covering each other's ass if something goes wrong. You're, you're watching grown-ups pretend and, and be affected by the process of pretending with each other. And so maybe the reason it's gone so viral, and as technology's, you know, taken us over in the last 20 years or so, 30 years, whatever it is, 
Um, technology makes us makes us interpersonally farther apart from each other, even though we can follow 2,000, 3,000 people on Facebook and watch their photos and we feel more connected, mm -hmm. but we haven't had the human interaction. Mm -hmm. We haven't had the oxytocin release from hugging each other by looking at a Facebook picture. Right. And as the world's become more fearful and severe and as the global mentality uh, is being molded by media and the politicians to be all about um, Kardashians and people killing each other. What we miss and what we're, what we're dying for as humans is connectivity and a sense of belonging with each other. There's a lot of psychology, and I'm a psychology nerd, but there's a lot of psychology that supports the fact that the greatest human need is uh, human interaction and to belong to a group, a tribe what have you. Um, and so maybe that improv has grown so big and that so many audiences all over the world are interested and so many people are inspired to do it is because it gives us, it's the one thing that gives us a chance to experience human connectivity in a process that is the product and, uh, and that process is really, at the end of the day, just a celebration of each other creatively. Uh, creatively. So that would, be my, that would be my opinion of how we got here. That's a great, it's, it depends. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> one, it's one of those rare things, too, where the audience is part of the process. Right. Yeah. And the product. Yeah, Essentially. and in different ways. I mean, yeah. it's um, it, it's short form in, engages them every three minutes and asks for them, and they participate in that way. And the narrative, uh, may, depending on who's directing it or how they're running it, you know, they're there because they want to see Jane Austen. They're there because mm -hmm. they want to see uh, Shakespeare. They're there because they want to see Mamet. Okay, now we're there. Now we have this expectation of this style, the genre that we're here to see, and you're gonna make this up. And here's a title, <gasps> will they do that? And then it's just, you know, costumes and skill and the experience with each other, still celebrating the moves in that context. And if it's just, trust us, this is all made up, you're there because you or somebody that uh, you came with said, you gotta see these fucking two guys, they're the best they are in the world. Um, I mean, it's, it's, the audacity of thanks for your money. Now we're gonna make shit up for you. Yeah. Right? They yeah. don't know what the product's gonna be. We're in a yeah. touring company, and, and one of our <coughs> bosses is like, you know how intimidating it is to walk, in, walk into a Fortune 500 company, talk to the VP, and say, you need to give us $1,500, and we're gonna come in and teach you how to do it. Well, what are you gonna do? We're not sure yet. You know, what I mean, it's like you have to part with this money, and we're gonna just make this bullshit up. Yeah, it's. Um, I do all of, I'm in charge of all, or I'm, I'm the director of uh, design and delivery, facilitation, whatever. I'm in charge of corporate stuff for Sharna. Mm -hmm. And when I'm, not, when I'm not working with improvisers, I work with improvisers uh, two-thirds to three-quarters of my time that I'm quote-unquote working, and then one-third to a quarter of my time I do corporate training stuff, which is usually either based in just strict improv training or training in skills that like actors or artists or performers use for corporate people. And so as a person who sells this, if you can get somebody to give you $1,500 for a we don't know, then that's cool. But you can charge more <laughs> when you can tie the skills that we use in improvisation to the skills that corporate people or humans mm -hmm. need and then 
tie that forward to how how are you going to benefit in your business if you're providing a product or service? How can you benefit in forming deeper relationships with clients? Um, improv teams, great improv teams exist and sustain because they have great relationships with each other. Even if uh, you have a love-hate relationship with them, you keep coming back for it. And it's like, there's so many love-hate relationships in offices and corporations and whatever. It's like, it, then the missing piece must be improv for things to be productive. Because at least you're interacting. You know, I don't think you'd watch an improv show where there'd be a big screen and you'd just see a big chat room and people sitting in cubicles on stage uh, <laughs> IMing each other. Mm -hmm. But that's what corporate world is. So, it's... it's I love, like, I love doing corporate stuff and I love, yeah, the truth is you don't know what's going to happen, but you, you know what can happen. You know, it's like, fuck, I, I accidentally became a corporate trainer like 28 years ago because they needed a, the formal training company needed a blue collar guy to deal with, uh, to teach Ford and Coke because the suits with their big fancy Ivy League educations, the people in Atlanta and the people in Detroit, they didn't give a fuck about them. It's like, you know, you never been on a factory floor. Go fuck yourself <laughs> with your presentation skills. <laughs> <laughs>